We're going to look at this New Testament book called First Thessalonians in a series called Fully Alive, exploring how Jesus brings personal renewal, relational renewal, and cultural renewal. And today we're asking the question, how does the gospel change me? And we're going to do that by looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. I'll read the text and then we'll pray together once more and we'll invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. This is God's word. Let's pray together once more. Heavenly Father, thank you that every person in this room, those sitting outside, those joining us online, matter to you. We pray that you would speak to us today through your word. As we open your word, would you open our hearts and teach us how it is that we change. For those who are discouraged and they feel that in particular areas of their life that they cannot change or it's not possible, we pray that you would speak to them today. Show us and remind us of your transformative power that is not only true for us, but for those around us. For those who do not yet know you, I pray that today they would hear and understand the gospel and be saved. Would you be our teacher this morning? We ask in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Well, in 1986, the Getty Museum paid $10 million for a statue they believed was from the 6th century B.C., But a year later, it was denounced as a fake, which is a bummer when you pay that much money. (laughs) After being initially satisfied with early test results, the statue was purchased and proudly displayed for all to see. The unveiling was even featured on front page news. However, upon that unveiling, some experts immediately doubted. The more they examined the statue, the experts saw what appeared to be a mix of styles from different time periods all in one statue. In fact, I read the former director of the Met in New York said, I've dug these types of statues out of the earth in Sicily and they don't come out looking like that. The point is, 
what took some a year to figure out, the experts discerned in an instant. It was probably a fake. So what do you do when you paid $10 million for a statue that might be a fake? Well, you put a plaque on it that says, date, 530 BC or modern forgery. And you can go see it this weekend at the Getty. Now, unlike this museum and unlike that statue, the Apostle Paul, when he thinks about these men and women that he shared the gospel with and who formed a church in this ancient city, he was not content to put a plaque over their lives saying they could be real or they could be fake believers. No, there's too much at stake. Paul is able, as it were, to place a sign over this group and say, they have been changed. They are genuine believers. And here are all the reasons I know that to be true. And his description of them back then becomes a lesson for us today in discerning what authentic and real change looks like. The word of God helps us to identify what true change is so that we would not settle for forgeries. Which does raise that all-important question. Am I faking it? Are you faking it? The New Testament tells us that there are certainly times and there will be people who go through the motions when it comes to the Christian life. They will wear the mask. They will attend a service. They might even give other financial resources. But there's no genuine change from the inside out. The New Testament says there will be some who will go out from the church who are never of the church. And so there's this need. Paul reminds us in all of his letters to examine ourselves to make sure that our faith is genuine. And a passage like this helps us to do just that. So how do I know if, if I am changing? How do you know that you are changing? How do we even know that change is possible? This is important stuff because name an area in your own heart and your life where you would most like to see change. Be honest with yourself and before God this morning. It may be within your emotional life, your relationships, your marriage, your children, your friends, your work. Where is it that you most want to see change? And bring that need to the word of God this morning. From this passage, I would like to point out three reasons why the gospel changes you. Three reasons why the gospel changes you, which also serve as three reasons you know you are being changed by the gospel. It acts as a way to examine ourselves. And the first is this. This is the first reason the gospel changes you. The first reason that the gospel changes the Thessalonians. And it is this. Number one, the gospel is personal. The gospel is personal. Notice Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 5. Because our gospel came to you. Not simply with words, but also with power. I want us to note several things about that very brief sentence. They're absolutely key for us. First, the gospel is a message. The word gospel appears several times in this paragraph. It is a message, a life-changing message. 
which is important to remind us because it reveals that you do not become a Christian. You are not transformed. You are not changed by some vague teaching about love or about human morality or about spirituality. And yet that is what many people confuse Christianity to be. Oh, this will just help me be a little bit of a better person. This will just help me to be a little bit more nice. The gospel is a message. The gospel is an announcement about good news. It's not a philosophy. It's not a nice idea. It's not an inspirational TED talk. It is an announcement about what God has done for sinners. Jesus Christ has come to do what we could never do for ourselves, to rescue us from sin, Satan, and death. The gospel is an announcement. It's a message. But notice the personal language that Paul uses when he talks about this message. He says, our gospel came to you. No doubt Paul, as he's writing these words, was reflecting on the personal responsibility he had as a messenger of the gospel. Because when the apostle Paul was saved, when he was first converted to Jesus, he was then sent by Jesus to go and to spread the message. And so in light of that responsibility, he often referred to the gospel as my gospel or our gospel. But it was also a, a, a personal term. He says, the gospel that I personally believe and I'm also commissioned by came to you. The gospel is not just for the world, it is for you. If you're hearing these words, it's for you personally, not just everyone generally. And notice what he adds after this sentence. Our gospel came to you, not simply with words or not only in word. What does he mean by that? Well, of course, the gospel is a message. It has to be communicated. But what Paul means here is that the hope of the gospel does not lie in the eloquence of the person speaking it. Eloquence does not equal effectiveness. Meaning a person is not going to be changed depending on how well we communicate the message. And I don't know about you, but that is encouraging to me. Because I often think like, oh, if I just get it perfectly right, if I can just share the gospel in the absolute perfect way, then their life will be changed. Which is why I often beat myself up after I preach on a Sunday. Like, oh, if I just would have nailed it in that Sunday morning service, then a life would be transformed. But then God reminds me, Tim, it's not about the preacher of the word. It's about the preaching of the word. It's not about how slick you can run a, a church service or how effectively in your own human ability you can reach out to others. There is power in the message. And that should be encouraging for every single one of us. Because think about this. If people are converted by human power, then they can be unconverted. If people are drawn into the church, you know, through a slick church service, then they can be drawn away by anything else. And so Paul here reminds us that there is more at work than human ability. He said, not just with mere human words, there's more. He says, it is with power. 
Listen, you and I could speak to our tongues fall off, but it will not change anyone. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, people can change. It is a message with power. But what does that mean? What does it mean that there is power? And what does he mean by using this word here? Some writers suggest that Paul is referring to events that can often surround the preaching of the gospel. We see this in the book of Acts that records for us the earliest history of Christianity, the birth of the church. Oftentimes when the gospel was communicated, the event of preaching was surrounded by miraculous signs that happened. There's healings and deliverance. And we believe that this is possible today. However, it is worth noting that Paul actually doesn't use that word to describe those signs, as it's often called in the book of Acts. Plural, powers, plural. When they're referring to these miraculous events that surround the preaching of the gospel, they use the word plural. But here, Paul uses the word power in singular form. What does that mean? It means this. When he says, our gospel came to you with power, he's saying the message itself became a power to you. The very message itself became a power to you by the Holy Spirit. See, we speak to the ear, but the Holy Spirit of God speaks to the heart. That is, the Holy Spirit takes what is true and causes it to become real to our own heart. The Holy Spirit causes it to come to bear on our heart. And so Paul says in the same sentence, with power and with deep conviction. He's saying something's going on in the heart and it is powerful. This means, friend, that you experience conviction and you experience comfort. This is true both for someone who becomes a Christian as well as for someone who lives as a Christian. So think for a moment about the effort to share the gospel, to share the good news. In someone else becoming a Christian, Jesus knows what stands in the way of that person putting their trust in him. And so the Holy Spirit is the one at work. We can't argue people into the kingdom of God. We can't convince people into the kingdom of God. But the Holy Spirit can change a heart. The Holy Spirit is the one who knows what stands in the way of a person trusting in Jesus. And the Holy Spirit causes what is true in general to become personal. And friends, I can certainly speak from experience. Because over 20 years ago, I remember when I was invited by uh, this new friend that I'd met to this like cheesy Christian event. I mean, the music was terrible and I'm a little picky, so there's that. It was absolutely terrible. And I went in there with like all my Northern California arrogance because if anyone, you know, was born and raised or lived in the San Francisco Bay Area, you know what I'm talking about. Pride ourselves in being jaded and cynical. Like we basically believed in science and crystals. If you want to understand Northern California, it's in those two words. Science, like deeply intellectual. Well, you know, there's arguments. I'm like, crystals! Like my teachers filled their classrooms with like dream catchers. It was like after the summer of love in the 60s, they all moved across the Golden Gate Bridge and became my elementary school teachers, which might explain a lot about me. You're like, this guy's not unwell. I'm like, well, Bay Area. So I went in there with my jaded, cynical, like, I'm not getting saved. 
maybe some of you have this experience. And I go to this event, my music's terrible. I don't like the preacher. That wasn't a funny joke. <laughs> maybe you're like that this morning, like, I hate this guy. <laughs> but as hardened as my heart was, I will never forget the moment that he said, this gospel is for you. And if you're here and you're hearing this and you're not yet saved, he said this, you need to swallow your pride, confess your sin, and trust that Jesus died and rose for you. And in that moment, my heart broke and I began weeping uncontrollably. Not because I heard the words of a man, but because I heard the words of God. I knew that God was dealing with me. If you're here this morning or if you're joining us online and you're not yet a Christian, the Holy Spirit wants to take what is true but make it real to your heart. The same is also true for living as a Christian. The gospel is personal. It means that when we're in a church gathering like this, we don't just listen and say, oh, somebody else needs to hear this. Right? That happens all the time, especially if you're married. You're like, oh, my husband needs to hear this. You know, maybe one of them is sick. One of them watched, you know, online at home and you come home and you're like, honey, you need to hear this. And they're like, that's weird because I was thinking the same thing. It was a message on conflict resolution and repentance and humility. And I just, I just really wanted to send you the link because I think God wants to speak to you. Right? There's always the elbow nudge. You're thinking about your friend and your neighbor. You know, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But friend, it's one of the easy ways to slip out from under the conviction of the Holy Spirit by always thinking it's a message for someone else. But church, the Holy Spirit wants to speak to you. The gospel is continually for you. This is true of conviction. Maybe you're experiencing the, the Holy Spirit. You're a little uncomfortable because the Holy Spirit is wanting to address certain truths about your life. And if that's you and you're uncomfortable, good. The Holy Spirit is dealing with you. The point is not to come to a church service or open your Bible throughout the week and say, I liked it. As if we're consumers. What'd you think about church? Eh, I give it a 6.7 out of a 10. Last week was more of a 7.0. The other week was a 4.0. The point is not, I liked it. The point is, God was dealing with me. But this is not only true of conviction, it's also true of comfort. How many times do we read these amazing Bible promises or you hear about them in church like God is your shepherd. He loves you with an everlasting love. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And you think, well, that's for someone else. Can't be for me. Oh, that promise that God will work all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Well, that's got to be for someone else. But friend, the comfort found in the word of God is also for you. One of the reasons we change is that the gospel is personal. Jesus died for me. Jesus died for you. Jesus forgives you. Jesus accepts you. Jesus empowers you. Jesus guides your life. And the Holy Spirit wants to bring that to bear on your heart this morning. But it doesn't end there. The change continues. The first reason we change is the gospel's personal. God wants to change you. But secondly, the gospel is powerful. It results in a changed life. 
The Holy Spirit, it's personal. He brings the truth to bear on your heart, catches your attention, and you begin to get the sense that God is dealing with you, which is also a sign that you are growing and learning as a Christian. You know that it's personal. God's dealing with you. But it doesn't end there. It results in a changed life. The gospel is powerful. You know you are being changed when other people see it. Paul knew this and he refers to the witness of the Thessalonian church when he recalls the good report that he received about them after he left. He says in verses 6 through 8, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we don't need to say anything about it. What's Paul doing? He's describing the change that had taken place in these men and women. So much so that notice the language he uses. Verse 6, you became imitators of us and the Lord. And verse 7, you became a model or an example. And what an example it was. Because in verse 8, he says that your witness rang out not only in Macedonia and Achaia, the region in which they lived at that time, but everywhere. Which raises an important lesson. Whether you realize it or not, whether you like it or not, we are right now forming patterns in our lives that will affect the lives of those around us. And often God reminds us that this is so, so that we would take stock and ask ourselves, should people follow my pattern? When you look at the pattern of your life, if you look at the pattern of my life, can other people see it and imitate it? And would it lead them to life or would it lead them to danger? I want to live my life in such a way that sets a pattern for others. Now, this is not to say that you'll never sin. This is not to say that you won't fail or make mistakes or have seasons of dryness and difficulty. See, many of us believe that, like, oh, don't follow me as an example because I, I sin or I fail. That's not the point. It's what we do when we fail. It's what we do when we sin. Do we turn back to the Lord? Because if we do, that in itself is an example to other people. Listen, in the Christian life, perfection is not required. But progress is necessary. There's a difference. Don't hear this message thinking, oh, this is impossible because I need to be perfect. And some of you are kind of living underneath that, that burden, like, oh, my life's got to be perfect. Like, I prayed for 27 minutes this morning and my kids saw it. I repeated the Lord's Prayer 20 times in the King James Version. Perfect. <laughs> and then you make a mistake and you're condemned. You're like, well, I guess I'm not a Christian. No. Listen, perfection is not required. But progress is necessary. I mean, your growth probably, a lot of us think our, our growth in the Christian life is going to be like a line, a straight line on a graph that just goes from like immaturity to perfect maturity. Straight line. But in reality, it's more like your finances. It kind of goes, oh yeah, oh no, bad month. Oh, good month. Oh no, bad month. You know, it's that crazy line. 
But the trajectory is there. One day you will be in glory. But it's not always a straight line getting there. Perfection is not required. But progress is necessary. And that progress becomes an example to other people. What we're told in Scripture is that our lives should have evidence of change. This is what Paul saw in the Thessalonians, and this is what he encourages in us. When the gospel becomes personal to you, the gospel then becomes powerful through you. When you allow the Holy Spirit to work on your heart, he begins then to work through your life, and your life then becomes a walking illustration of the gospel. Now, this is important, especially for the year 2022. Imagine for a moment if the way that everyone in our country and everyone in Ventura County would ever find out about Jesus was only going to be through the local church. Just imagine that for a moment. Imagine that there were no Christian best-selling authors. Imagine there were no Christian apologetics websites. Imagine there were no podcasts or films or magazines or any other publication or resource available that was Christian. What would it do? I think it would raise the stakes on the local witness of the church. Now, those things are great. I'm so thankful for good podcasts and books and films and all of that. And they can be an excellent resource in sharing the gospel, but they're never a replacement for my witness. They never replace the need for me to set an example for others. And in many ways, this is what the first century was dealing with. They didn't have like a website that they could send like, oh, Thessalonianfaith.org, you know, like go there. They were like, hey, watch my life. Let me tell you about Jesus. I believe that Paul is raising the stakes on the importance of the witness of the local church. Raising the importance on your witness, friend. Your witness in this local church. Where they didn't have a staggering amount of resources like we do today. He is reminding them of the importance of our example. Paul himself modeled this. He said, hey, follow me as I follow God. He said this in his other letters. In 1 Corinthians, he says, follow my example. Well, Paul, isn't that a little arrogant? No. He says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So how does the gospel become powerful through you? Well, there's many ways in which we tell and we show the truth with our lives, but there's two that are found in this text. Notice he says, you received this word in the midst of suffering and you also endured difficulty with great joy. Here's two ways in which we can be an example of the gospel working powerfully through us. The way that we face suffering and the way that we have joy. He mentions them here. He says, hey, Thessalonians, you guys received this word and you did so in very difficult circumstances. The way you faced suffering, he's saying, was different than the way that the world faces suffering. And friends, what a great witness opportunity that we have before us right now. In a world that has gone mad, we have an opportunity to approach adversity and suffering and difficulty differently. 
As a Christian, you could say, yes, suffering is real. Difficulty is real. But it doesn't derail me. It doesn't derail my life. One of the great examples that you can set is facing suffering in a different way. But also, notice, and I love this, he says, you also endured it with joy. Inward joy, despite the outward circumstances, is one of the greatest witnesses of a changed life. That even when it's hard, you still have this underlying joy. And I am convinced that this is what the world needs to see right now. Joy should be like the secret weapon for the church in the year 2022. Because the message around us is like doom, despair. And the Christian's like, yeah, but joy. <laughs> right? Like you read the news and it's like the world is falling apart. And then you come into a church service and we're like, I've got joy in Jesus. And non-Christians should be like, what is this? Like, I remember when I wasn't yet a Christian and I like met this Christian person who invited me to this event and they had joy. I was both simultaneously fascinated and irritated with this person. I'm like, I've got a bunch of tough questions for you. And they're like, yeah, I don't know the answers to those questions, but I have a joy that not even death can take away. And I was like, oh, you're so irritating. I both want what you have, but I'm too prideful to admit it. And you're just, ah, I'm conflicted. Friends, joy is one of the greatest witnesses that we can have right now. Do you need to have the hard conversations with other people? Sure. Can you talk about what's going on in the news and in the world? Sure. But can you please do it with the joy of Jesus Christ? The joy that knowing that you have a victor, you have a conqueror. The tomb is not full. The tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. He's at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. And as 1 Thessalonians remind us, he's coming back. You have a reason for joy. And when people see that joy, they know it's not a natural joy, but a supernatural joy like the joy found in this church. The gospel becomes personal. God is dealing with you. And then the gospel becomes powerful through you. It changed life is one of the best advertisements for the gospel. But you might say, well, but can't I find this kind of change somewhere else? Can't I find this kind of joy somewhere else or in someone else? Well, the answer, to be perfectly clear, is no. And that leads to the third heading. Three reasons why we can change. The gospel is personal. God deals with you. Jesus died for you. The gospel is powerful. It results in a changed life. But thirdly, the gospel is irreplaceable. The gospel of Jesus Christ is absolutely irreplaceable. There is nothing else in this world that can do for you what Jesus Christ is able to do. And Paul acknowledges this at the end of this chapter. He summarizes the shift that happened in the hearts and lives of these men and women in Thessalonica in verse 9 and 10. For they themselves, the people he had heard from to visit them, they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. 
There are two very important sentences in this small paragraph. First, his reference to turning to God from idols. It's both fascinating and it's powerful. Let me tell you why it's fascinating. If you do your digging and do a little bit of history on the city of Thessalonica and the practices and the religions of Thessalonica, and you read the history about the men and women who eventually became Christians here, many of them were called God-fearers, meaning that they weren't yet Christians, but they most likely did not worship physical idols. They didn't have statues that they adored, paid homage to, gave reverence to, like other Greek and Roman cities. Thessalonica, these people were not known to worship physical idols, like many did in other cities. And yet, Paul says in verse 10 that they turned from idols. Why? Because Paul is saying this, idols are everywhere. They're not just things made out of wood and stone. Even to a people group that didn't worship physical statues, Paul said, you turn from idols. Because Paul knew that you can turn anything in this world into an idol. It could even be a good thing, but you make it into a God thing. And you look to it to give you salvation. Listen, this is key because we are surrounded in a world full of false alternative saviors. Potentially even good things, but that we often look to for salvation. There's the counterfeit, there are counterfeit gospels, the counterfeit gospel of rule keeping, the idea that if you just keep all the rules that you can save yourself, but then yourself is an idol. And you cannot save yourself. We're all fallen in sin. There's the counterfeit gospel of people pleasing. If I just please my mother, my father, my, my husband, my wife, my children, my friends, if I just please them, everything will be fine and I will be saved. But it's empty because the opinions of man do not substitute the approval of God. And if you live by the approval of people, you will die by their rejection. It's a counterfeit gospel of people pleasing. Or there's the counterfeit gospel of self-promotion. It's success in life and I, I just get the money and the house and all the things, you know, then I will have what I need. But it's another idol. These counterfeits thrive especially in North America, because we live in a performance culture. Paul says, you turn from idols. Idols are everywhere. But all these idols will never work. Why? And why would we be tempted to look to an idol? Well, the answer is in verse 10. When Paul mentions that Jesus saves you from the wrath to come, that is key. See, everyone has a sense of guilt. Everyone. And everyone is trying to deal with their guilt. They have a sense of the wrath to come. That is a sense of condemnation. Like, I've done wrong. There's skeletons in my closet. Whether people know it or not, I've got this sense of guilt. And I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do with it. So I'm doing everything. Trying to please my parents to doing a food cleanse. To like, you know, donating to charity. Like, I'm just trying to get rid of my guilt. Everyone has a sense of condemnation. Everyone is trying to do something about their guilt. And that's why people look to idols. 
something that will rescue me from my guilt. Maybe it's a romantic relationship. If I just have this, then I will be saved. That's why you listen to all those pop songs and they're like crazy mythologies. Have you ever like listened to a love song, like a Bruno Mars song? It's like, I'll take a grenade for you. (laughs) I'll do anything for you because only you can take me to heaven. And we just put it on as background music. You're like, idolatry. (laughs) We look to these things because we think they will relieve us of our guilt and of our shame. But the reality is they will only serve to increase it because we're looking in the wrong place. But the gospel comes in and clarifies this truth. We're all guilty, but we're guilty before a holy God. And it is here at the very end of this chapter that the difference between Jesus and the good news about him is so clear in comparison with anything else in the world. Jesus and only Jesus can deliver you and me from the wrath which is to come from the condemnation that our sin deserves. Nothing can save you but Jesus, and you know you are being changed when you can say, Jesus, there's no one like you. Jesus, there's no one else that can do what you do. Only Jesus can deal with my guilt. Only Jesus can deal with my shame. He's not some dead idol. He is, as Paul says, the true and living God. See, friends, Jesus is the only master who actually came to serve you. He's the son of God, yet he came and lowered himself for us 2,000 years ago. And he went and he suffered on a cross. He died for our sin. Why? So that you and I could be delivered from the wrath to come. That is why he had to die. Believing this is how you are saved. Continuing in this truth is how you mature as a Christian. You continually realize that nothing else can save you. And we continually turn to Jesus. We continually turn back to him. Even the most mature believer is tempted to trust in something lesser than Jesus at times. Like, oh, this thing's going to save me or that thing's going to save me. But we hear the word of God. The Holy Spirit brings the truth to bear in our hearts and we are reminded again and again and again that only Jesus can save us. And the contrast between an idol and Jesus becomes more and more clear as the years go on. An idol will exploit you, but Jesus will empower you. An idol will abandon you, but Jesus will never leave you. An idol will disappoint you, but Jesus will fulfill you. An idol will deceive you, but Jesus will speak the truth to you. An idol will bring guilt. Jesus removes your guilt. An idol will break your heart, but Jesus will heal your heart. There's no one like him. There's no one else that can change. The gospel is personal. God speaks to you. He works in your heart. The gospel is powerful. He begins to change the patterns of your life. And the gospel is irreplaceable because there is no one like Jesus. And knowing that, believing that, receiving, notice these three verbs, turning, serving, and waiting. We turn from idols to God, we serve him, and we wait for Jesus Christ to come again. That's how we respond this morning. We turn, we serve, and we wait.
knowing that Jesus is absolutely irreplaceable. It may be today, friends, for those of you who've been Christians for many years, it may be that the Holy Spirit is revealing particular areas or patterns of your lives that he wants to correct, that he wants to change. Maybe there's areas in which you haven't been listening to him or allowing him to work in your life and that, that pattern that you're leaving is not pointing other people to life. My family and I, we, we go on these, you know, whenever we go on a walk and my wife always reminds me that I walk way too fast. Like I'm a, anyone else, like I'm a power walker, right? I'm just like walking, like this is normal. Like when we were living in London, I was like, yep, do it. Walk 20 miles an hour, going up the stairs, down the stairs. Like I'm a two steps at a time guy. Anyone else? Like I can never do one step. I'm like, even at the mall, I'm like, whoo, whoo, I like need to get up there. And my wife's like, hey, you left your wife and family behind. Oh, shoot. The point is, I need to readjust my footsteps for the sake of those who are following me. And it may be that the Lord wants to readjust your footsteps because other people are following you. And Jesus wants your life to point them to him. And thankfully, all this power to change and to rearrange does not come from manpower or willpower. It comes from God's power. It comes by resting on his grace and his grace alone. Because only grace supplies what all these counterfeits promise but can never deliver. A clean heart, a fresh start, and lasting change. So right now, let's turn where we need to turn, turn away from idols and turn back to the Lord. Let's serve him. Let's offer our lives anew and afresh to him. Ask for that joy and let's wait knowing that he will return and he will make all things new and your change will one day be complete. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for those right now who are just dealing with a sense of condemnation, like, oh, I can't change, I've tried. Lord, I pray that they would know that that is a lie, it is not true, your power is mighty and supernatural and is able to change every one of us. And so I pray right now, those men and women would turn to you in childlike faith and say, God, what I cannot change, you can change. Holy Spirit, I want to listen to you, not resist you. God, I can't manufacture joy, but you can give me joy by your Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that you would fill our hearts with such great encouragement this morning as we turn from any counterfeit gospel or false promises of the culture or idols and that we would turn again anew and afresh to you and say, Jesus, you are irreplaceable and I worship you and I serve you and I wait for you to come again. Oh, Lord, I pray that that would bring such hope in our hearts even now. That the greatest of our problems is no match for Jesus Christ. Would you take what is true and cause it to become real to our hearts right now? I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, this time is set aside intentionally 
as a time that we respond to what it is the Holy Spirit wants to do in your heart and in your life. Where is it that you need to turn? If you're not yet a Christian, don't allow this moment to just fly by you, saying, oh, the Christian message is for someone else. Friend, it's for you. Will you trust in Jesus today as your Savior? And church, where is it that we need to turn from these counterfeit promises like, man, I've just been putting way too much hope in something other than Jesus. I need to turn from that. I invite you to do that by confessing your sin to God and coming up here and taking communion this morning. It's one of the ways in which we declare that we are feeding off of the finished work of Jesus Christ. If you've believed in the gospel, come forward without shame. Eat the bread, drink the cup. Remember, Christ's body was broken for you. His blood was shed for you to deliver you from the wrath which is to come. It means you can confess your sin and receive his forgiveness with a smile on your face because the work is finished. Jesus did it. Celebrate that this morning. Express biblical postures of worship and adoration as we long for him and wait for him. We can lift our hands. We can kneel on the carpets down here at the front. And we can also pray. There are men and women to my right, to my left here against the walls with the prayer lanyards. They're here to pray with you and for you. Listen, some of you didn't plan on getting prayer this morning. That's fine. The Holy Spirit may, well, just want to interrupt your plans. Say, you need prayer. It's one of those ways in which we just open ourselves up to what the Holy Spirit wants to do. So I invite you to come. If you need healing, if you need power, you need joy, you need resilience, you need courage, wisdom, direction, let nothing hold you back this morning from prayer. Just get up and walk past the people in the rows and just say, I don't even know how to pray. I just need prayer. I need God to work in my life. Come and pray. And as we sing together, friends, let's sing adoring our matchless irreplaceable Jesus who's done for us and can do for us what we can never do for ourselves. And that's good news. Let's celebrate it now by responding to what the Holy Spirit wants to do.